0: Well, before we turn to our catechism lesson for the evening, I'd like to read with you two brief uh, texts. The first is from Acts 2 and then from Revelation 5. And these really speak of the same truth, the same reality, but from very different perspectives. First, we have the perspective on earth. As Peter is preaching to his brethren... Among the Jews. Now, these are covenant people. These are people who know about God, who know about His covenant and His covenant promises. And Peter, in the verses leading up to this, reminds them of how God worked in all the history of Israel to bring forth His Messiah. And He talks about how He revealed that Messiah in Christ, in Jesus. And then beginning in verse 32, he says, This Jesus, God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven... But he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. God has made him both Lord and Christ. The Christ, the fulfillment of all the offices of the Old Testament, the prophet, priest, and king, but also Lord, the supreme king. Now with that earthly view of Christ in our minds, we turn to Revelation 5 where we see the view from heaven. John has just described at this point in Revelation his vision of the throne room of heaven where God is seated on the throne at the center of all, surrounded by the four cherubim, the four living creatures, All of whom are surrounded by the 24 elders representing the church of the Old Testament and the church of the New. And then he says, I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Amen. Now having witnessed both from earth and from heaven, the significance of Jesus having been enthroned in heaven, we take up... The three questions that comprise Lord's Day 19. Why, in your confession, do you confess the next words, and he sits at the right hand of God? And the answer is, Christ ascended to heaven there to show that he is the head of his church, the one through whom the Father governs all things. How does this glory of Christ our head benefit us? Well, first, through his Holy Spirit, he pours out gifts from heaven upon us, his members. And second, he defends and preserves us from all enemies. How does Christ's return to judge the living and the dead to comfort you in all my distress and persecution with uplifted head? I confidently await the very judge who has already offered himself to the judgment of God in my place and removed the whole curse from me. Christ will cast all his enemies and mine into everlasting condemnation, but he will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into the joy and the glory of heaven. Amen. Beloved disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, a while back... A person from outside the church, who I knew from a different context, asked me if I would help him work through some questions he had about theological stuff. Sure, we can do that. He's a friend from college. And some of his questions were fairly straightforward, just simple questions of fact, questions of understanding the Bible. Others were a bit more challenging. One of those questions had to do with Jesus' nature. The question he asked was, why is Jesus invisible? Humans can't be invisible. That's impossible. So why is Jesus invisible? Why can't we see him? Well, The answer is that Jesus isn't invisible in his human nature. Because his humanity, his physical self, is like ours. It's just not here. He's enthroned at the right hand of God in heaven. That's where his physical body is. That's why we can't see it. Because his humanity is like our humanity, in his human nature, he can only be in one place at one time, and that place is in heaven. Of course, in his divinity, through the Holy Spirit, we're never apart from him. Right? But because his humanity is like like ours, it's enthroned heaven. In heaven, He is enthroned in heaven, and that's the way it has to be. Because if Jesus wasn't like us, then he would be of no help to us. If he wasn't one of us, then he couldn't have stood in our place in dying on the cross. He couldn't have conquered death for us. He couldn't be interceding as our perfect high priest at God's right hand. But that almost requires a second question, and that is, why does Jesus have to be in heaven? Why couldn't he just having conquered death, having paid the price for our sin, why couldn't he just stay here on earth? Why couldn't he circulate among the churches, spending a year or two among the churches of of America, and then maybe spending a bit of time among the churches in Asia, and then, you know, popping over to Africa for a while? Why must he physically dwell in heaven rather than remaining among us on earth? I mean, it would seem to be helpful if he was here. Wouldn't that make it a lot easier for folks to believe in him? And, I mean, surely he could mediate among us when we had questions, when we had disagreements. He could simply say, you're right, you're wrong, here's why. Well, the answer, well, there's a lot of nuances to it, but the heart of it is really simple. Jesus had to ascend to heaven, had to be enthroned there as our king in order to impart the confidence that we need in his kingly authority. And that's what... Lord's Day 19 seeks to show us. Christ's heavenly enthronement imparts confidence in his kingly authority. And as we consider how his heavenly enthronement imparts confidence to us of his kingly authority, we see, first of all, that his authority was entrusted to him for prospering the church. Understand that Jesus' ascension into heaven was hugely significant for confirming what he said about himself. After he arose from the grave, he gathered his disciples together to him on a mountain in Galilee, and he spoke to them about the calling of the church to make disciples of the people of the nations. And he described what that would look like, what that would involve. But first he told them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority." has been given to Jesus, and we see that in the location of his throne. Every nation has some sort of king, some sort of sovereign power, usually located in some grand, glorious palace or place of ruling. We have the White House, right? But Jesus' throne is above them all. Situated in heaven, above the reach of any human power. Visibly, Jesus was set over every king, every nation, every power in every place. And that authority, that sovereignty, that power was given him in order to bless the church. Remember, when he announced that authority in Matthew 28, it was in the context of calling the disciples to spread his kingdom, to grow his church, to gather in his elect and make them his people that work of discipleship, that work of completing the kingdom, would rest upon and would apply Jesus' kingly authority. And that's an important point. Jesus' authority was given to him by the Father for a reason. It was not given him just so that he could enjoy power over everyone, or so that he could play favorites and give to this people uh, the things that they ask while withholding from these people. No, it's not for that at all. His authority was given to him to bless the church, the people whom God chose from before all time. And it wasn't merely just to gather them. It was to gather them and equip them and transform them and prosper them. What we heard in our assurance of pardon this morning, the Father chose a people for himself, not just to save them from hell, but to transform them so that they might bear the very image of Christ, so that they might be adopted as His beloved sons and daughters, so that they might know and love and serve and and glorify Him throughout eternity. God created us to exercise dominion over the world as His office bearers, as prophets and priests and kings in His name. Sin ruined that. Jesus is restoring that. So he's not just saving us from hell, he's also transforming us so that we can live eternally with him in the renewed heaven and earth. Exercising dominion in his name, doing what we were created to do. That's why he had to to ascend to heaven so that he could demonstrate the authority he had been given for the sake of gathering and prospering his church. Because that would be a big job. God ordained that people like us would do it. That we would be the ones who would go out and would speak about Christ. That's why we were praying that prayer. I don't know about you, but I feel pretty small. When it comes to the idea of gathering in and discipling the nations, I feel pretty weak, and I am. And so are every one of you. But Jesus has all authority, all power, all power. And that's what we apply. Right? I don't know what to say, but he knows what to say, and he has the power to teach me in the moment. I can't transform the heart of a sinner and cause them to submit to Christ, but he can. And he'll do it through my weak ministry, through your weak witness. So that it's evident that the power comes from Christ. But we won't do that if we're not confident in Christ. And so we have to be confident that He is the King who is above all things. He's greater than Washington, D.C. He's greater than any other human authority. He's greater than any educator, greater than any philosopher, greater than anyone. We can trust Him. We can be confident in Him. And that makes the church utterly unique among the institutions of men. Every other institution social clubs, governments, even families are rooted in the will and the power of man, right? A group of people get together and say, this is what we're going to do. We're going to do it in this way. We're going to do it by this power. We're going to do it with these resources. If they're Christians, they might call upon the Lord for help. But it's still originating with them, but not the church. The church originates with the The design and the command and the power of God. He is in it from first, last, and all the way through. And the power on which it all rests is Christ, who is enthroned in heaven. That means He is our identity. When we go to our neighbor and we show them love, when we go to our neighbor and we speak to them about life, when we go to our co-workers, to our friends, to our children and grandchildren... We're not going to them as representatives of the Lions Club or the Odd Fellows saying this is a cool thing you could do, you'll really enjoy it. No, we're going to them as representatives of the King enthroned in heaven and saying this is what you're commanded to do. And God has the power to overcome everything in you that would stand against Him and to transform you in such a way that you will please Him in all that you do and and equip you to be able to serve Him both now and unto eternity in a way that will absolutely matter. Doesn't matter how much you do by, by the wisdom of your mind and by the power of your hands, it'll be forgotten it'll fall broken and decayed to the ground in the end unless unless it is done by the power of Christ. He's enthroned in heaven. He has the power to equip you to do what He commands and He has the power to make it last eternally. He's the only one who can do that. Look at where He's seated. Look at the power that He's been given. That means that we have the ability to do what He commands us to do. Not just... Not just Calling people to repent and believe, that certainly, above all else. But also raising up our families to know and love Him. Using our businesses and our work to honor and glorify Him. Serving as leaders in society in His name. We can do all of that by His power, by His authority, because He has all authority. And it was entrusted to him ultimately to prosper the church. See, Satan longs for us to have a defeatist attitude. Satan longs for us to doubt that we can do it. We're going to start a church. Come on. We're not we don't have the look at us. We can't do that. I remember those words in Hills, Minnesota. Little church half this size. Asked by a small group to start a church in Sioux Falls where there was exactly one confessional church. And how many people said, we can't do that, we're too small, we're too weak. What business do we have? But slowly, person by person, bit by bit, God convinced us that the one who is on the throne doesn't depend on the right number of people or the right power of people or the right number of resources. He just depends on himself and our faith in him. And there's a second aspect of the confidence imparted by Christ's kingly authority, his heavenly authority, and that's authority that's exercised for the preparing of the church. This is related to the first one. Not only was his authority entrusted for prospering the church, but is exercised in preparing the church. You see, as king, Jesus wants us to become kings. Recall the, the song of the elders that John heard the elders singing in heaven in Revelation 5. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth in redeeming us. Jesus intended for us to rule with him over all the creation. And that's not just something that starts after the day of judgment. Again, we were created to exercise dominion in the world, doing all that we do. Not just our worship, but our work, our forming, our building, our all of it in a way that honors him, in a way that reflects him. That means the wisdom that we employ, the creativity that we demonstrate The faithful stewardship that we use, all of that is intended to point people to the Lord by revealing His very image, by revealing His very character. Now, we can't do that on our own. We're too corrupt. We're too broken. Left to our own strength, we are sure to fail. We're going to be like a funhouse mirror, putting forth not the image of God, but a distorted mockery of His image. And so Jesus, reigning from heaven, He prepares us... To fulfill our calling. Peter said in Acts 2. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Jesus from heaven pours out his Holy Spirit. Just as he did at Pentecost so he does today. Equipping his people for the works. Plural. To which he calls us. Certainly the work of building the church, but also the many, many other works that he calls us to do. The works of building families, the work of building a community, the work of building a business, the work of forming and molding and shaping these raw materials into something finished and final and good. He equips us, He gifts us, He provides for us. There is not one part, this, this idea that, that much of life is secular and, and destined for the ash heap and only the small little piece is sacred. That's foolish, that's contrary to scripture. All of life, in a sense, is sacred because we're called to use all of life to glorify God and to reflect His image. But we can't do it unless Christ is equipping us. And from heaven he is. From heaven he is orchestrating and ordaining all of the details of your life. All of the opportunities you've been given. All of the gifts that you've been given. He's setting them all before you at just the right time. In just the right way. Bringing different people into your life. And as you start taking up those opportunities... Young people, the opportunity perhaps to learn, to grow, to sharpen your resources, whether at a trade school or at a college or or among a particular group in a job. Or as you take up the opportunity to start a business that will employ people, that will take some of those raw materials and make it something final and good. God's giving you the gifts, God's giving you the wisdom, God's giving you the insight because Jesus says this is what He needs right now. This is how He needs it. In order that He might exercise dominion in our name. Demonstrate the character of Christ before a watching world. He's also purifying us. We can't bear his image if we're acting like the people of the world. And yet we'll act like the people of the world if we're left to our own devices. And so the Lord, he begins working in us. In in, uh, Titus 2, verse 12, we're called to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. We won't do that on our own. But day by day. Christ is filling us with the conviction by His Holy Spirit that we need to change, that we need to put off those sins that dishonor Him. That we need to step away from those friends that draw us into rebellion. That we need to renounce those thoughts that are unbecoming God's people. He begins giving us a desire for holiness and then bit by bit he begins imparting the strength to embrace that which we've begun to desire. And it's halting, it's stumbling. It doesn't happen all at once. He does that for a reason. He wants us to see that you're not strong enough. You're not committed enough. You're just not enough. So that day by day we fall to our knees and we ask, Lord, give me the strength I need today. Today to put off that wickedness. Give me the strength I need today to avoid that temptation. Give me the strength I need today to seek after good influences. Give me, and we learn to trust in the one who is enthroned in heaven, the one who's able to purify us, the one who's able to transform us. Oh, so much more could be said. But what we need to remember is that Jesus is enthroned in heaven so as to provide exactly what we need. He's not only prospering us, but he's providing at every step of the the way. Not just for the growth and the spread of the church, but also for the, the ability of his people to bear his image even in the little things. Young people, I want you to remember that. I remember feeling like I was at a, A marking time job washing dishes it's my first restaurant job I've done just about everything in a restaurant short of owning the restaurant which I don't want to do and uh, the first job was washing dishes I remember walking into the bus room and the guy who was washing the dishes uh, they were introducing me around and he walked up to this I walked up to this guy that was washing dishes and put my hand out and he Turned around from where he was loading dishes and he put his hand out and there was food hanging all over it. And I went, what am I doing? You know what I found out? I was serving God. Because he wanted me to learn how to serve in the humblest of ways. He wanted me to learn how to serve in a way that no one would notice unless I didn't do the job. He wanted me to learn how to put my skills and my gifts to work, doing the best job I could do, even though I was fairly confident that nobody would ever notice it. That was an exceptionally important job for me. But at the time, I couldn't see that. See, that's what God's doing, what Christ is doing from heaven right now. He's giving you those kind of opportunities. And he's equipping you to take up those opportunities in a way that will prosper you and provide for you and prepare you for the next thing, and then the next thing, and then the next thing after that. So that at each step, you're reflecting his image in different glorious ways. And then there's one more aspect of what he's doing in heaven. One more aspect of the confidence that we have in our enthroned king. And that's confidence in His authority that ensures the preservation of His church. You see, we live in a hostile environment. In a very real sense, we live in a war zone. So great are our enemies that we ourselves are basically defenseless. But Christ is exercising His authority in heaven to preserve us. Our catechism says, by His power... He defends us and preserves us from all enemies. It was providential that we read Psalm 109. Because the enemy who is described there, David doesn't pull any punches, does he? He didn't remember to show kindness but pursued the poor and the needy and the brokenhearted to put them to death. He loved to curse. He did not delight in blessing. He clothed himself with cursing as his coat. Those people roam the world today. And they love nothing more than to attack those who serve the one who most offends them. Who is Christ. And that means we're going to face them. We're going to face the people who love to mock, the people who love to undermine, the people who love nothing more than to see those people who worship God, who, according to them, must think themselves so high and mighty, they love to see us fall. They love to see us embarrassed. But they're not even the worst of the enemies. Paul says in Ephesians 6, that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In other words, Satan and his demons are hunting us. Your enemies are very real and very dangerous, but, but we have no need to fear them because our king is greater than all of them and he has vowed to pre- preserve us. He's the one. Who according to Psalm 110 is seated at the right hand of God in heaven. And he has authority over every power that would afflict you. From ungodly leaders of the nation or the state. To the dark powers of the spiritual realm that we can't see with our eyes. He's greater than all of them. He has them all in his sights. He won't allow even one of them to go beyond what he has ordained. Now that doesn't mean that they won't sometimes hurt us. They will. Oh they will. I think we're seeing that increasingly in our country. We're not seeing people put to death for their faith, but we're seeing them losing lawsuits and bankrupted out of their businesses. We're seeing laws that are very much intended to destroy. We, our Congress just passed and our president just signed into law a law that will that will not might, but will punish us for believing God's definition of marriage. Because it regards us as lawbreakers if we won't acknowledge homosexual unions, transgendered unions. And we're going to have to choose. Will we honor For the sake of self-preservation, that ungodly law, or will we honor God Himself? If we honor God, it's going to cost us. But we can honor God, we can follow Him, knowing that Christ is on the throne in heaven. And He won't allow a single thing that won't ultimately be for our good. Now, it might cost us some things. It might cost us our tax-exempt status as a church it might cost some of us our businesses it might cost me a fine or time in jail because I refuse to do a wedding or three so what don't fear those Jesus said who can harm your body but fear him who can cast both body and soul into hell Jesus is seated at the right hand of the heavenly father he is victorious over all, over all of our enemies. That means He can stop them in their tracks. He can reverse them in a moment. He can cause those who today are seeking to afflict us tomorrow to fall before Him on their knees, begging forgiveness and repenting. Or, He can allow them to take our very lives. But on the last day, It is of them that Psalm 109 will have spoken because they will have shown themselves to be the enemies of Christ. Either way, we will be at Jesus' side. We will know the fullness of the victory He's already won for us and on that day we'll be able to look back like I can on that first job at the restaurant. We'll be able to look back and say, this was all for our good. It was hard at the moment, but oh how good He caused it to be. Do you see what confidence that gives you? We don't see the big picture right now. We don't see what all he's doing. We don't see the blueprints. But he does. And he's working out even all the little details. Not just for our good, but for the good of every single person who belongs to him together. That's way beyond our pay grade. But praise the Lord, we have a king seated in heaven who's able to keep it all straight and orchestrate it all perfectly. Our calling is to trust Him. Our calling is to be confident that our King who is enthroned over every man, woman, child, power, nation, or being, He's greater than anything that would afflict us, greater than anything that would slow us down. And so looking to him, trusting in him, praying to him continually, we move forward as a church and as individuals with what God has given us to do today. This is a good thing for us to remember at the start of the year. Because we don't know what this year will hold, but we know that he does. And that he's able to empower us to use it all for his glory. So keep your eyes upon the ascended King. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you have caused your son. You have caused him to be both Christ and Lord. Enthroned at your right hand and exalted over every power and nation of this world. You have given him the power to preserve, to prepare, and to prosper your church. In every situation, in every age, until he returns to make all things new. Cause us, Father, to keep our eyes on him, focusing at every point on his power, on his perfection, on his love for us, and on the authority that you have entrusted to him. And Father, having focused us on him, cause us to do things, to take up tasks and challenges and opportunities that would turn the hearts of many to you, that would cause them to recognize your power at work, even through those who are as weak and as small as us. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.